Lovely to see you all this morning. Um, we've we've labelled this event with a question: uh, What's your passion? And I guess um, all sorts of things could come to mind. We've had some mentions from Kate and Ken already, but it could be your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband, your wife, your hobby that you love, the group that you're a part of, your family maybe, or that cause that you feel really strongly about, a band, a lifestyle, a football team, a sad football team, um, a musical instrument that you're perfecting to play, your job, your pet, your savings. The list could go on and on. But I wonder, I wonder... If you had to choose just one, if you had to pick one thing for which you would drop everything else for, um, uh, what would come number one? What would come number one? Um, It seems to me that there's a little bit of the Easter build-up in Matthew's account of what happened 2,000 years ago that might be a bit of help in answering that question. What's your passion? So um, we're going to take a look at Matthew 26. If you want to be getting your Bibles ready, Matthew 26 can be the first um, uh, 16 verses. Um, but just before we get there and have a look at these, uh, this chapter, or the first bit of it at least, um, it's worth recognizing what's just gone before. So three chapters have been spent with Jesus talking to a crowd and his disciples, and it has been pretty hard-hitting stuff about judgment and the end of the world. And Jesus finishes that address in chapter 25 with three stories or parables that suggest that our passions in life are made obvious by our actions. Basically, actions demonstrate allegiance. Imagine if aliens turned up from another galaxy and secretly watched your life. What would they think was most important to you as they watched what you were doing? Or or what would they think you were most dedicated to? In the opinion of these little green men, who would they consider was your leader? Or where would they think your allegiances lie? What would they think was your passion as they watched? Well, in Matthew 26, we're going to get to be the alien spies, looking on four groups of people or individuals. And it's very clear as we watch what they think is most important. The evidence is pretty obvious because their actions demonstrate their allegiance. So keep your Bibles open um, or your alien surveillance equipment switched on if you want to think of it like that. And and let's take a look about what's what's going on. Uh, I'm going to pray and then uh, Julia's going to come and read these verses to us. Um, So let me pray and then we'll, we'll go for it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you want to speak to us. Help us to listen carefully today, to think about Jesus. And Lord, if there's stuff that we need to change, help us to do that too. In your name, amen. Um, Julie's going to come and read. But as she reads, see if you can spot the four groups of people or individuals and the different actions that they have. Thanks, Julie. The reading's taken from Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 16. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, 
a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Thank you very much, Julia. Um, Jesus knows it's his last few days on earth. If you look at verses 1 and 2, you uh, hear Jesus um, saying this. When Jesus had finished saying all these things to his disciples, um, he, said, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man, that's just another name Jesus gave to himself, will be delivered up to be crucified. Just remember that word delivered there. Um, the end of Matthew's account of Jesus' life are funeral plans. And as you read scripture at this point, it tells us there is only one person who's driving history or his story, if you like, and that's Jesus. However, there are some people who might beg to differ. Enter group number one. These are the plotting priests. You can read about them in verses three to five, but this lot of fuming. Maybe you can sympathize a little bit, feeling this way about Jesus and some of the things that he said. All their buttons are being pushed by Jesus. In his recent chatter, he's accused them of being hypocrites. Now, I, for one, don't appreciate being told that I look good on the outside while being a mess on the inside. It really, you know, punches my ego, especially when it's true. Anyhow, this lot had had it. Jesus' words had pushed them over the edge. We, we can't have a self-proclaimed Messiah calling the shots and messing with our plans. Here, here, I, I agree with you. I mean, what does this bloke think he is? We're the ones who are in charge, thank you very much. Tell you what, let's kill him. Oh, yeah, that's a brilliant idea. But not on the Passover, because that's when he said he was going to die, and there might be a riot, and we just want him dead. Isn't it really scary to think that good religious people can get Jesus so wrong that they want to dispose of him, just get rid of him, kill him. Well, it might be scary, but human beings through history have often found God's way of doing things pretty unacceptable. In Isaiah 55, Isaiah writes this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. And let's be honest here, God's plans often differ from ours, don't they? And it's infuriating when that happens, isn't it? We're planning one thing, and God has a very different idea. Ugh, I hate it when that happens. 
So when God's son turns up on the earth, it's not surprising that his plans mess with the plans of the priests. And it's not surprising that they react at all. However, it does seem a bit of an overreaction, don't you think? I wonder, I wonder if you've ever planned to kill Jesus. Well, maybe not, but when someone kindly tries to get you to think about God or Jesus or eternal things, and they do it kindly, but you get angry, well, isn't that pushing Jesus away? Or, or what about when Jesus makes church life difficult because of all those church family members who get on your nerves a bit? Wouldn't you rather walk away than hold hands with Jesus and walk into those situations and those issues? And then there's the way all of us, I think, just cover our ears when the Bible or, our, or the Holy Spirit through our conscience nudges us and says, you know, that's just pride or selfishness or anxiety or lust or all, a whole host of things. No, I just don't want to hear about it. Thank you very much. In my heart, I don't think I plan to kill Jesus, but pushing him away or walking away or sticking my fingers in my ears are all steps to joining with this group of plotting priests. What's your passion? Because your actions demonstrate allegiance. I do love the fact, though, and this is encouraging, that as we spy on these plotting priests, from their perspective, they think they've got Jesus right where they want him. But really, it's totally the other way around. Jesus says exactly when he's going to die, and they can't stop that. Ironically, in Matthew 26, Jesus walks towards the cross that offers rescue to the very people who are plotting his death. If you're challenged today as we go on about your rebellion or turning away or your deaf ears, just remember, whatever it is, no personal plotting can ever derail any of Jesus' loving, kind, caring, grace-filled plans. And his plan was to die to save plotters. Group number two. Uh, here they are. They're the disgruntled disciples. The disgruntled disciples. Um, Simon the leper, I'm guessing that wasn't a name he gave himself, um, hosts Jesus and the disciples. Uh, they're finished they finish tea and they're <laughs> relaxing at the table and then something out of the ordinary happens. Verse seven. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. When you read some of the commentaries about this, it suggests that it could be worth a whole year's salary. And what does she do with it? She pours it on his head as he reclines at table. Now, before we think about the response of these disciples to what this lady does, just have a ponder of what hasn't happened. Uh, what hasn't been forthcoming from these people who are supposed to be as close to Jesus as you can get. Um, it's the fifth time, if you read the whole of Matthew's gospel, that Jesus has told his disciples he's going to die. And so far, their response has been pretty poor. But this time, he puts a date in the diaries. Passover, in two days. It's very soon. Why aren't the disciples praying with him? Why aren't they putting an arm around him and consoling him? Why aren't they reminding each other of all that Old Testament stuff uh, about God's rescuing king turning up? I think their lack of emotional and theological intelligence is <laughs> it's just staggering. It's flabbergasting, really. And then to make it worse, just hear their response to this lady's perfume performance. Verse 8. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? 
For this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. Um, you know, like a child um, who's stood on a hill at sunset with a beautiful view, who just picks up a twig and is examining that on the floor. The disciples have totally missed what's going on here. As they berate this woman for her deeds, they're basically saying, Jesus, you're not worth it. Disciples saying, Jesus, you're not worth it. What you've said is about, you're about to do, it's just not that important, really. And then Judas goes one step further, verse 14. One of the 12. I think that's there for a reason. One of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me to deliver, same as verse 2, deliver him over to you. It just shows that Jesus is still in control. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. It seems that you can be super close to Jesus and yet miss what's most important. What's your passion? Because your actions demonstrate allegiance. Us, um, us Christians, we like Jesus quite a lot, don't we? He's a good lad. Um, uh, but there's some stuff that even though it's true, we find it quite hard to stomach and quite hard to talk about. Yeah, Jesus is a friend. He's, he's great to have around. He walks with us through tough stuff and he gives us good stuff. Yeah, one day he's coming again. He's going to sort out everything right from wrong. All that's quite easy to sort of talk about. But the most critical thing, Jesus' death, it's a bit extreme. Our sin isn't so bad that God's son had to die. Surely not. It's easy for Christians to talk about charity and um, unity and community, but it just sometimes feels a bit weird and embarrassing to point people towards the cross with all its implications. However, if I am placing myself anywhere in the story, I think this is the spot. I'm, I'm with the disciples, um, and I need to listen to what's being said. And in doing, in standing in that spot, I've got to ask myself a question. Have I domesticated Jesus and changed the emphasis of the good news to make him a little bit more convenient? Whether um, it's through ignorance or design, I think that's what the disciples are doing. And as we zoom in from our spy satellite, it's meant to challenge us. Jesus did what he did. He died on a cross, and we can't change that. I might try and make Jesus in my own image, to fit with my agenda because if I play down the cross well that means I don't have to pick up my own cross so much I don't know but this passage tells me that if I do that I'm just selling Jesus off slowly on the cheap because it's not the whole truth actions demonstrate allegiance well sandwiched between the plotting priests and the disgruntled disciples is this one woman She's at the center of the story, and Jesus points her out as the focus. Why? Well, because unlike the priests and the disciples, she provides us with an extravagant example. No expense is spared. Verse 7, this is very expensive ointment. Self-consciousness, that's not an issue for this lady. The overspending that's going to leave her broke, not bothered. A woman interrupting a male gathering, that's not good etiquette. But it doesn't phase her. And pouring perfume over a man, whew, that's got erotic overtones that has. The gossip round town tomorrow is going to be a nightmare. But she's not fussed. The shame that might come doesn't matter one bit because she's doing what's the most important thing to her. This is her one true passion. 
He is her one true passion. You know, this lady is the one person who recognizes what Jesus is going to do in all of the Gospels. She's the one who sees what he says he's going to do and sees it as important. Um, well, the priests plot and um, loathe, she prepares and loves. Well, the disciples um, uh, moan and betray, she marvels and beautifies. She's an inspiration. Uh, and the contrast is meant to be really stark here. A nameless, shameless, over-extravagant one, woman is the one who is remembered for doing the beautiful and right thing. She's the one who gets it. The disciples and the priests who should have spotted it don't know what's going on. Somehow she understands Jesus has to die. And that, my friends, is the real good news of Easter. Jesus has to die. No wonder Jesus says in verse 13, truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel, I'm going to die, that's what he's just been telling them, is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be also told in memory of her. She trusts in Christ's sacrifice, and so anything and everything else is secondary. Actions demonstrate allegiance. Of course, from our alien spaceship perspective, we've got a little bit more history. Jesus did die after this occasion happened to take our punishment. He's separated from God so that we never have to be, and he proves it by coming back to life from the dead. Come again at Easter if you want to hear a little bit more about that. But before then, just let me ask you, if Jesus really has done what Jesus really has done, if he has loved us that much, if he has lost everything for humanity to gain what we don't deserve, a relationship with God, doesn't that leave us with something amazing and satisfying to live for, to be passionate about? Doesn't that make us free enough and grateful enough to face shame for the truth's sake, head on, just like she does, just like Jesus does? Couldn't we recklessly and lavishly give up money and stuff just like she does, just like Jesus did? Couldn't we face being misunderstood and mocked because this is right and real just like she did, just like he did? This woman is an extravagant example and her actions demonstrate her allegiance. We know exactly what her passion is. I was chatting to um, a good Christian friend recently and confessing that one of the things I find most difficult about being a Christian is the suffering bit. You know, don't want to ever pull the wool over anybody's eyes. Being a Christian is brilliant. It's the best thing ever, but it is hard. I don't like the idea of persecution. I don't like the idea of growing old or letting go of security and control. I, I, I don't like the idea of just being in this rubbish, broken world and all the stuff that comes at us. And if I can avoid it, I will. That cross-shaped discipleship of suffering before glory is not that appealing, is it? Unless we realize, like this woman, how crucial Jesus' death is. He has died, so even if we do, we won't. Do you get that? He has died, so even if we do, we won't. We just need to get over ourselves a little bit. So when you um, love that unlovable person at church or work and they don't love you back, that's okay. Because it, it sounds pretty familiar, actually. Or, or when you try and explain what you believe and somebody calls you a 
God-bothering Bible basher and tells you to bog off, well, that's fine. Something similar happened to somebody else we know, didn't it? And when you give of your time or money or energy and no one says thank you, or even worse, you're criticized, well, that's all good because it's a reflection of somebody else. And when you do the hard things and it just feels costly, you are closer than ever to our last surveillance subject. I said there were four people that we were spying on from our spaceship, and I've saved the best to last. It's Jesus. He himself says in verse 2 that as this bit of history unfolds, he is moving step by step, verse by verse, towards his death in our place. That is never, ever going to change. He really is committed to doing that for us. He did it in history. He literally loved us to death. The question isn't whose side is Jesus on. Our alien surveillance cameras will show us that he is on God's side and on our side too. And he's willing to die to prove it. The question is, whose side am I on? Uh, if I show you this picture, I wonder how it um, makes you respond. Um, my guess is um, there will be um, some people who go um, yum. Oh, do that the right way up. Some people who go yum and some people who go yuck. Here's a demonstration of how one of Marmite's adverts showed that. Paddington, you'll remember from childhood, always keeps a marmalade sandwich for emergencies. I've always had marmalade, thought Paddington. Maybe I ought to try something different. Mmm, really rather good. Hello, would you like some? <coughs> oh dear. I think we'd better get you home. Squeezy Marmite. Sandwiches need never be dull. Um, so Paddington is a, is a yum. Hands up if you're a yum when it comes to Marmite. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the bird is a, a yuck. Hands up if you're with the bird. Yep, there you go. Um, uh, you see, even from that last sort of screenshot, oh, it's not on there anymore, sadly. Um, the, the, the makers of Marmite uh, even use the fact that some people hate it and some people love it in their advertising game. People either love it or hate it. There is no in-between. Well, God tells us in the Bible that when it comes to Jesus, the same is true. You're either loving him 100% or you're hating him. There is no in-between. You can't be lukewarm with Jesus. There's no sitting on the fence. If Jesus is who he says he was, God's rescuing king and the Lord of all things, then you have to say yes. You can't say no, Lord. You have to say yes, Lord. You have to trust him. So are you plotting or disgruntled? Or are you with this lady? Are you sure he is God's rescuing king? the son of man who sits on the throne and you are 100%, no holds barred, all in, everything out for him, on his side, no matter what happens, no matter what the cost, with actions that demonstrate allegiance. You might not buy perfume worth a year's salary and pour it away, but my question this morning is, do you need to take some initiative when it comes to Jesus rather than just ignoring him or pushing him away? Whose side are you on? What is your passion because your actions demonstrate allegiance. For me, if little or nothing in my week reflects my allegiance to Jesus and the rest of his body, the church, I think I need to stop and think hard. Um, I don't know where, where you're at. I've not met any of you apart from Ken, which is lovely. Um, uh, maybe you've told folk that you've followed Jesus for years 
or, or maybe this is all new thinking. Wherever you are at, if you're anything like me, you'll find admitting that you've blanked and ignored Jesus a bit painful. It's hard to sort of say that to yourself even. And true, it, it does hurt to admit that. But it's not the end of the chat. Jesus is ready to talk. The wonderful thing about him is that even when we screw it up and we live for ourselves, he's interested and he wants us back. As these priests plot, what is he doing? He's going to die for them. As the disgruntled disciples whine, he steps closer and closer to the cross for them. And that's why Jesus is so attractive to Christians. He is the Lord of second and a thousandth and second chances. He predicted in verse 2, and he walks towards the cross willingly because he loves to rescue people like me and people like you. As we say sorry and confess, he says, I forgive you, and I've sorted at the cross. Uh, and I proved it because of the empty tomb. What's, what's not to love about that? You know, what, what's not to live for? What's not to die for? What, what is your passion? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, help us all to just sort of individually engage with you on this question. Um, Lord, thank you that um, there are places that we can go to get answers. Thank you for showing us this morning of the lengths you were prepared to go to to sort out our biggest problem, uh, the way we turn our back on you. Thank you for Christ to death. Help us never to forget that and help us to share it with others. Um, Lord, I pray that you would keep on helping us to think this through as the week goes by. In your name, amen.